You want to listen back to any of it or? Okay, I'm talking my microphone. Not as loud as you. you okay, not. I talk in my microphone. I talk in my microphone. That's what I'm doing. I'm talking. I'm talking in. I'm talking in the microphone. microphone. I'm talking in the microphone. It works. Okay. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch. Bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to rule your lips, shake your shoulders, shake your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Um, uh, let's do a podcast. Uh, should we do a podcast? We should. Okay. It's time. Okay. Let's go. Let's do it. Hi. <laughs> Okay. Hi, my name is Deanna. I am one of the hosts of this podcast. What is this podcast, Deanna? It is Good Witches, Bad Bitches, a weekly podcast about women. And I'm your other host, Hannah. One day we'll get a really good intro down, but... We say this every week. You know. I hope you realize that. Yeah, it's It's part of our We sound like a broken record. Nah, whatever. At this point, it's part of our intro. Our intro is to be awkward. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not scholars. We just like talking about ladies. We and like shooting the shit, talking about women who are intriguing. Sometimes cool, sometimes scary. Most just interesting. Yeah. That you should probably also know about. Yeah. We have entered March. It is March. It is March. It is indeed March. March Madness. March Madness. March March is Women's History Month, I think, which is kind of funny because every month is Women's History Month. Every for week us. is Women's History Week here on Good Witches, Bad Bitches. That's so right. we're here to bring you our regularly scheduled programming with no particular <laughs> focus, just like our brains. <laughs> um, on that note, uh, just so that it's at the front of our show instead of at the back end. If you could leave us some fantastic reviews talking about how focused and awesome we are, that would be great. Um, just, you know, if you like us, if you like the show, if you like the content, please consider doing that. We would very much appreciate it. And I just wanted to get that. Yeah, I know. You know I, I the know the tendency, the tendency for Yelp reviews is only to leave a review if you had bad service. And so tends to be that that's the reviews that pop up the most because we don't think to give a positive review if we love something. Right. So if you love this podcast and you haven't left us a review, what are you waiting for? I know. We have a lot of you who let us know how much you love us on Instagram and on Twitter. So if you are one of those people, go leave us a review on iTunes. It It would be very helpful. It helps other people be able to find us. Yes. And we don't mind constructive criticism either, as you well know. That's right. So, uh, so on that note, I think. Do you want to just dive into my lady this week? I think we should do that. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on, on our, our Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> oh no! Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully, the more content we can start creating exclusively oh, yeah. for patrons. Yes. So, if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. Okay, so I want to start by uh, talking about my sources this week. Um, my sources are a piece on littlewhitelies.com, which is lwlies.com, uh, by Lindsay Ford. And then a piece, an interview from The Guardian that was republished in 2007 by Charlotte Chandler. The original interview was in the 70s. Um, but they took an excerpt and republished it in 2007. Cool. And then uh, Wikipedia. Nice. So uh, a smattering of things, and um, there's a lot to cover. So here we go. Here we go. 
Um, I was intrigued by this person because of a podcast that Alex was listening to called Bizarre Albums, actually, which talks about random music albums that have happened throughout time. Huh. At, like, there was one that was done on the Archies, which did the, the sugar. Oh, honey, oh. honey. Which yeah. the Archies was like a, a, a fictional band. It was Archie Andrews. <laughs> and so, oh. yeah, so it was like a cartoon band, but they had an actual hit. And so, but there are real musicians behind that. Anyway, so that's an example of what they give. So he was listening to an episode about albums that Mae West released when she was in her 70s. What? She released these albums with teenage musicians. And it was so wild. And I was just like taken aback for a second. And I was like, why haven't I talked about Mae West on this podcast yet? Oh, shit. Because she is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, they agree. They're really excited for May this. Mae West. Boop, boop, boop. I mean, that is the kind of response she tended to garner. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of things that are really interesting about her and a lot of things that are really cool and a lot of things that are a little cringy. And she's yeah, just... she is. And she's one of the main reasons the Hayes Code came into being yeah. in the 30s, yeah. which was censorship of film from keeping them from being too body. Right. It was self-censorship. It was like the Hollywood, it was Hollywood basically saying, so that we don't get sued or so that we don't have any lawsuits, we're just going to regulate our own shit and decide what is appropriate and what is But it was really oppressive. And yeah. it was, we, as we know, one of the reasons Anna Mae Wong couldn't be cast as a, a role that she was absolutely perfect for because it didn't allow for interracial romantic interaction. Right. And if you haven't listened to the Anna Mae Wong episode, that one is a couple episodes back. So go listen to yeah, that. Yeah, it was from last May. Okay. God, has it been May? Was it May? Because really? it was Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Wow, I can't believe Which is that. in May. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So more than a few episodes back. Um, but that one was a great... I love Anime Wong. Yeah. She's fantastic. Um, but she couldn't be in this film that was specifically about a Chinese character. Right. right. Because they had already cast a white man to play the Chinese male lead. Right. So they just cast him to play Asian, and then they had to cast a white woman to be the Asian woman. Yep. Because yep. they couldn't have an Asian actress kissing a white man on camera. Crazy. Wee! So, Mae West. Oh my god. And of course- Mae West. It, now you know why my notes are so long, because her I career is absolutely prolific. Well, it's interesting because, so I, I went to film school, and so I had a couple of film history classes, and I'm trying to remember the big Mae West movie- that I watched, Ben, do you remember? Was that, were you with me? That wasn't the film noir class. That was the American comedy class that I took. Um, I I'm guessing it's probably. But I think Cary Grant was in it. Yep, it was It was her first movie probably. And that would be, oh, yeah, she, and that wasn't her first movie. But yes, that's the one you're probably thinking about. Yes, she done him wrong. Okay. It was one of Cary Grant's first yes. roles. Yes. And the next movie she made was also another movie with Cary Grant, so. Yes. Because the star system, Paramount Pictures and all that. And so I remember watching that film and you see, you see exactly what you're talking about with the Hayes Code, how like she just pushed the envelope in so many ways. Mm -hmm. I'm very curious to hear mm -hmm. her, her life story because I didn't know much beyond that film and just like how crazy out there she was. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, it's, it's wild. And she is... I think best known today, so many of her quotes are still in, in common rotation. Like everyone knows that it's it's Mae West. Like, is that a gun in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? That's Mae West. Mm -hmm. And I learned that she was a writer. So she wrote most of those lines that she's famous for. Yes. So anyway, she's let's get started on her because she's yes very yes. interesting. Dive in. So I'll start with one of her famous quotes. Please do. When I'm good, I'm very, very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. <laughs> oh, my God. Yep. So here we go. With her husky purr, platinum blonde curls, hourglass figure. She was quite curvy for Hollywood. Yes, she was. An exaggerated seven-inch heel walk. What? She was five feet tall. <laughs> oh, my God. And wore these special trick shoes that added seven inches of height to her. I will show you a picture of these shoes. They're crazy. 
because they're like shoes. It's like a heel and then a fake heel. Oh. That she had to work with dressmakers so that the shoes could be sh- and it it she had a very specific walk. And can you imagine if you're wearing seven inch heels? That's why. Yeah. She was known for a particular sort of swagger, like a so- slow sort of swinging your legs around. Yep. Because she was on stilts, basically. That's okay. insane. Yep. She was one of the most iconic sex symbols of 20th century cinema. The undisputed queen of camp, West rapid fire delivery, unbridled sexuality, and liberal liberal use of the double entendre delighted and shocked audiences and censors during the pre-code Hollywood era of the early 1930s. She was an early pioneer of the women's liberation movement, but did not consider herself like a bra-burning feminist. This is what's very fascinating about her. Yeah. She's very much about like seducing men and how important men are, but at the same time, not. It's, we'll get more into that. Um, But she was an it girl of the decadent jazz age through her bold and audacious image as the free-spirited, sexually permissive harlot with the heart of gold. (laughs) So she only was in 13 films between 1932 and 1978. Wow, that's it? Yeah. But she had had such a presence and uh, a sultry on-screen persona that she influenced a wide range of artists, including Salvador Dali uh, and the Beatles. Damn. Yeah. She was born on August 17th, either 1892 or 1893. She didn't have a birth certificate, so nobody knows quite for sure. Okay. Um, and she was uh, born in Brooklyn, born and raised in either Greenpoint or Bushwick. Oh, wow. So. Wow. Uh-huh. And she was delivered at home by an aunt who happened to be a midwife. Interesting. Oh. And she was the oldest of her siblings. Um, she had a, a sister who had been born before her but died uh, in infancy. Um, her parents were John Patrick West and Matilde Tilly Delker. So her father was a prize fighter, a boxer, known as Battle and Jack West, huh? who later worked as a special policeman and had his own private investigations agency. Okay. And her mother was a former corset and fashion model. So she came from um, a wild, uh-huh. slightly wild family. It's a very New York sort of... Uh-huh. Like, oh, I'm a I'm a fighter and this is my model wife and this is our child. She's going to go on stage. Yeah, there's there. It was just kind of predestined. Right. Um, So she had uh, a little brother and a little sister, Mildred Catherine West, later known as Beverly and John Edwin West, the second. So um, she was five years old when she entertained a crowd at a church social and started appearing in amateur shows at the age of seven. Entertain them by singing or just like... Presumably singing, like skits. Church probably wasn't too risque and she was also five. So, (laughs) Um, but she was probably hamming it up. Yeah. You know, I did lots of those when I was a kid too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) At my Buddhist group. My mom. (laughs) Not my church. Um, Oh, boy. And she would win prizes at local talent contests, apparently. So she started performing professionally in vaudeville. In the Hal Clarendon Stock Company in 1907 at the age of 14. Wow. And apparently some of her acts included uh, Blackface, which is not a surprise from Vaudeville. Yeah. So that's... But... Super fun. Of its time. Not not an excuse, (sighs) but of its time. Yep. Uh, She performed under the stage name Baby May and tried various personas, including a male impersonator. So she did some drag work, which is fascinating. Is fascinating. Yep. At five feet tall. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And being very curvy. Yeah. <laughs> like she, especially before she went to Hollywood, she was like a little stocky and that's mm-hmm. kind of cool. I don't know. It's beauty standards obviously have changed a lot. But, you know, not that much. No. Um, she used the alias Jane Mast early in her career. I think that when she was writing plays, because she wrote it, mm. a number of plays, that was her um, nom de plume. And um, part, another one of her walk uh, facts is that it was probably inspired or influenced by female impersonators, i.e. early drag queens. Ah. Um, like Bert Savoy and Julianne L. Tinge. I, that's, you know, probably wrong pronunciation. Uh, her first appearance in a Broadway show was in a 1911 review put on by her former dancing teacher. The show folded after eight performances, but she was 18 years old and singled out and discovered by the New York Times. They wrote a review that included the line, a girl named Mae West, hitherto unknown, pleased by her grotesquerie and snappy way of singing and dancing. So already she was known to be a little... 
Oh, yeah. La di da. She appeared in another show with Al Jolson in 1912 and uh, was appearing in a show as a baby vamp. So she was like all over Broadway really early on. She was 18 years old. Show after show after show after show. Lived in the spotlight. Yes. And was encouraged uh, to be a performer by her mother, as we were kind of discussing. It was a little bit preordained. Because her mother, according to Mae West, and she was really close with her mom, um, always thought that anything she did was fantastic. So when she started on stage, she was like, yes, my baby, and was like so supportive. Um, She had other family members who were less supportive. Uh, including an aunt and uh, her paternal grandmother. They disapproved of her career and her choices. Hello. Yeah, I feel like they were choices that were easily disapproved of. Well, and especially back the then, even just being an actress was considered as as bad as, morally speaking, for the time as being a sex worker. Right. They were like, you're basically a sex worker. Right. You're flaunting your body. You're whoring yourself out in yes. certain ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is interesting to me. I agree. It's kind of weird. Yep. Um, she, in 1918, so, uh, after exiting several high profile reviews, she got another huge break, uh, because she had a character who danced the shimmy, Uh oh. which of course is jiggling your chest around. <laughs> and it was like shocking and everyone, it like completely added to her notoriety and I'm she sure. became even bigger in the sort of Broadway stage circles than she already was. Well, could you imagine shimmying with those boobs and everybody she seeing had, the shimmy for the first time? She had a pretty generous uh, chest. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was around that time that she decided she was starting to write her own plays uh, under the name Jane Mast, as we talked about. Her first uh, starring role in a play she wrote was in 1926, a play called Sex. <laughs> 1926. All right. Which she wrote, produced, and directed. Interesting. Mm-hmm. What an what an interesting time in film and entertainment, mm-hmm. like the pre Hayes Code, but the Roaring Twenties pushing boundary. Oof. I mean, the Twenties is when you had the first uh, racially integrated cast on stage with Showboat. Interesting. Yeah, so there was a lot going on at yeah. the time of people pushing boundaries and what was considered acceptable. Right. Or I mean, it wasn't acceptable by audience standards, but they were still being allowed to do it. She was given a theater space to do this show that was. Um, uh, critically pretty panned because the, the critics were pretty conservative. Mm. Um, but ticket sales were through the roof. Interesting. It was like sold out almost always. Wow. Um, it also didn't go over well with city officials. Oh. <laughs> who received complaints from some religious groups. And the theater was raided one night by the police. And she was arrested along with the entire cast. I Whoa. learned too in my research, there were two other shows that were on at that same exact time. They raided three theaters in one night. Why? Because those shows were deemed to be, like, morally corrupting. And that was, and you could, like, arrest people for that? Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yep. I guess this is, like, this really is still the time of prohibition. Yeah. And people are really yeah. down about that. Yeah. I mean, if you are if you can't drink, you got to go get your jollies somehow. Right. Let's go to a show called Sex. <laughs> um, sorry for that bang. Um <laughs> oh, yeah? She was taken to uh, uh, Jefferson Market Courthouse, which is now apparently Jefferson Market Library, where she was prosecuted on morals charges. Wow. On April 19th, 1927, was sentenced to 10, j- 10 days in jail for corrupting the morals of youth. Okay. You could go to jail for that. Also, um, so easy uh-huh. to corrupt them. Uh-huh. So she could have just paid a big fine and not gone to jail, but she chose to go to jail because a jail sentence would garner her more publicity. Oh, yeah. And it was only 10 days. Yeah. And so while she was incarcerated, uh, it was Roosevelt Island, the jail that she was incarcerated. Oh. It was called uh, Welfare Island at this time. Interesting. Yeah. Um, she apparently like had a pretty swanky time because she became friends with the warden and his wife dined with them like every night and she told reporters that she got to wear her silk panties while serving time instead of the burlap the other girls had to wear what Mm -hmm. what Mm -hmm. okay and she got she got great publicity mileage from this jail stint just like she wanted i'm sure she served eight days and was released two days early for good behavior Media attention surrounding the incident enhanced her career and crowned her the darling bad girl who had climbed the ladder of success wrong by wrong. Wow. Yep. 
<gasps> so her play, next play after uh, sex was called The Drag. Okay. And was about homosexuality and drag queens. Wow. So In she's the tw- like- It's like 1927. It's funny for a person who is so famous for the double entendre that her first plays were just like, sex, drag. There's no double entendre about it. it. Yep. <laughs> and so that show, uh, she claimed that the inspiration behind the play came from the, the gay men that she knew in her life around the time who, according to her, desperately wanted to be open about their relationships. Um, she, Mae West herself, was an avid supporter of gay rights throughout her entire life. Um, the show had... Uh, this is fascinating to me. Uh, she auditioned and cast exclusively gay actors from a Greenwich Village club. Oh, so rehearsal. It, like, like uh, that's yeah, no. so radical for the time. Unheard We're having of. that fight now. Yes. Um, so she would rehearse the drag after performing in sex. <laughs> so she would perform in her show. Then they would go rehearse this show. <laughs> Um, wow. The rehearsals were largely improvisational, allowing the cast of 12 principal characters to invent the script themselves. So it was pretty collaborative. Um, and the final scene consisted of a giant drag ball with little dramatic function that utilized an extended company of performers. Um, and although this open form of performance encouraged a celebration of the liberated gay man, the play formed a dark underbelly that alluded to the drug addiction and violence that riddled gay life in New York City at that time. Really? Yeah. So the show had um, out-of-town tryouts in Connecticut and New Jersey, uh, and she announced the play would open in New York, but it never did because the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice banned any attempt to stage it. Um, She said, uh, the city fathers begged me not to bring the show to New York because they were not equipped to handle the commotion it would cause. Jesus. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So she, but she continued to write plays. Um, Her productions, of course, were always surrounded in controversy, which ensured that she stayed in the news and often resulted in packed houses. So it didn't matter that she was getting bad press. People still came to see her shows. Any press is good press, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. For her. Yep. Um, She had a play in 1928 called Diamond Lil, Hmm. which was about a racy, easygoing, ultimately very smart lady of the 1890s, became a popular hit. Uh, and she successfully revived it many times throughout the course of her career. And so with Diamond Lil being such a big hit, that's when Hollywood came according for her. Ah. So they came knocking on her door. And in 1932, she was offered a motion picture contract by Paramount Pictures, despite the fact that she was almost 40. I knew she was like older when she finally got into Hollywood. Almost 40 years old. Wow. Which... Again, for the time, incredibly progressive. Yes. And for 40, she was still a huge sex symbol. Yeah. She was a sex symbol until the day she died. Right. Well, and so much of of her sex symbol-ness came from this perception that she knew what she was doing. Yeah. Right? And so, like, being 40 is almost a benefit to that kind of character. She's the opposite of that sort of innocent little thing that you want to corrupt. Right. She's the woman who's going to seduce you from jump. You walk in the door and she's already like, well, hello there. Right. Like she's not Clara Bow. Nope. Trying to, trying to do that sweet, innocent thing. And you, and when you walk into her, any man who wants to sleep with Mae West knows they're in for a good time because she does know what she's doing. Right. So I can see how her age would actually be a benefit for her in that in that space in yeah. that role yeah. that she became especially so for the for. type of roles she was playing and, yeah. and the type of writing she was doing because she wrote a lot of her own work yeah um yeah so but she managed to keep her age pretty ambiguous for quite some time uh, she didn't even have a birth certificate so no, but she didn't she didn't talk about the fact that she was basically middle aged yeah for the thirties right you know. Um, so she made her film debut in Night After Night, starring George Raft, who suggested her for the role. At first, she didn't like the small role that she had in that movie, but was appeased when she was allowed to rewrite her scenes. Interesting. In her first scene, a hat check girl exclaims, goodness, what beautiful diamonds. And her reply was, goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. <laughs> Reflecting on the overall result of her rewritten scenes, George Raft is said to have remarked that she stole everything but the cameras. Uh-oh. Isn't that funny? I love that. She is. She's a scene stealer. Yeah. 
And that's why they're like, she should just be the lead, not because everybody's like, who is that? Yeah, you can't have her be a side character. No. Mm-mm. And she wouldn't want it anyway. Um, she brought her Diamond Lil character, now renamed Lady Lou, to the screen, and she'd done him wrong yes. in 1933. I was going to say that I thought I remembered that movie being 1890s. Mm-hmm. Being set in the 1890s, like kind of a Western uh-huh. theme. She was thing. like a saloon girl type. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. I didn't realize that was a re- reprisal of something she'd already done. That makes so much sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Yep. And the film was one of Cary Grant's first major roles, yeah. as we talked about. So Mae West claimed she spotted Grant at the studio and insisted he be cast as the male lead. Yes. She claimed to have told a Paramount director. If he can talk, I'll take him. Because <laughs> he's cute. Yeah, because yeah. she knows that people will see him and be like, mm. mm-hmm. she's like, if he can act, he's a star. Yeah. And she was not wrong. Um, it was a box office hit, earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. The success of that film saved Paramount from bankruptcy. Holy shit. What they year were, was that? 1933. Wow. She, they were on the brink of bankruptcy. But that film grossed over $2 million, which is the equivalent of $140 million today. Damn! Paramount recognizes that debt of gratitude today because she has a building on the lot named after her. Oh, that's amazing. She saved them. Yeah. And in that in the interview that we're going to talk about later, she says that's her, her most proud accomplishment is that she saved Paramount Pictures. That's huge. That, she, she said I she mean. thinks that there ought to be a statue of her on the Paramount lot. But now she has a whole building named after Basically her. Basically the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, her next release, I'm No Angel, teamed her with Cary Grant again, was also a financial success and the most successful film of her movie career. Wow. Uh, in the months that followed the release of that film, references to her could be found almost everywhere, from the song lyrics of Cole Porter to a WPA mural of San Francisco's newly built Art Deco Coit Tower to She Done Him Right, a Betty Boop cartoon ah. to My Dress Hangs There, a painting by Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald said that she was especially unique, that she was the only Hollywood actress with both an ironic edge and a comic spark. Because hmm. that's the interesting thing is I think that, you know, I mean, even today, Hollywood likes to try and pigeonhole female actresses. It's like mm-hmm. you're either funny or you're sexy. Right. And she was both. Right. Right from the beginning. Being both is sort of like, oh, we don't know what to do with you. Which I think was probably true at the time of Mae West, too, but she made her own roles, so it didn't, you didn't, she didn't need anyone to tell her which, which one. Because she was be. like, no, I'll write for myself. Thank yeah. you. Um, so by 1933, she was one of the largest box office draws in the United States. Amazing. And by 1935, she was the, the highest paid woman and the second highest paid person in the United States oh after William God. Randolph Hearst. What? Yeah. She was commanding $300,000 per movie as an actress. She got a share of the profits, and she earned $100,000 per movie for writing. Amazing. She wrote nine of the 13 films in which she starred. Wow. Yeah. Or was a part of the writing team or what have you. Sure. At one point, actually, uh, William Randolph Hearst invited her to his house in San Simeon, California, designed by Julia Morgan, episode 67. I made a note of that. Well done. (laughs) Uh, I could have married him, West explained, but I got no time for parties. I don't (laughs) like those big crowds. Uh, On July 1st, 1934, the censorship of the Motion Picture Production Code began to be seriously and meticulously enforced. And Mae West's screenplays were heavily edited. She would intentionally place extremely risque lines in her scripts, knowing they would be cut by the censors, and hoped that they would then not object as much to her other slightly less suggestive lines. Smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, her next film was Belle of the 90s. Um, the original title was It Ain't No Sin and was changed due to censors' objections. Oh, my God. Uh, censorship uh, continued to take its toll in eroding her best lines in many Ugh. of her subsequent films. Um at one point, actually, uh, William Randolph Hearst, as we talked about before, uh, was ostensibly offended by an offhanded remark that she made in the movie Klondike Annie about his alleged mistress, Marion Davies. Uh-oh. So he sent a private memo to all of his editors saying, that Mae West picture Klondike Annie is a filthy picture. We should have editorials roasting that picture. Mae West and Paramount do not accept any advertising of this picture. Jesus. Crazy, right? This man who at one point was like, hey, come over to my house. And then she like made a comment about his mistress and was like, she's a 
filthy whore, basically. Like, isn't he? Isn't he somebody who that tended to work for? Surely, him, I think. What did he? Newsies is also about Hearst, isn't it? Or no, it's Pulitzer. Yeah, sorry. It's about powerful men who control the media, and that's what he was. And he wanted her career to end because he made she made one offhand comment about his mistress. Yep. Which is so hypocritical because he's talking about how she's filthy and blah 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 when he's sitting there with a mistress that everyone knows exists, but she just talks about it openly. And oh no. Yep. Um. Wow. At one point, Hearst asked aloud, isn't it time Congress did something about the Mae West menace? Jesus Christ. Par- this reminds me of Donald Trump when he gets a fucking, like... Yeah. Like, uh... Bug up his ass. Bug- yeah, thank you. I'm trying to think of... Bug up his ass about somebody, and he just sticks to it until public opinion shifts. Ugh. But it didn't quite work with Mae West. Um, not no, she's not, that beloved. Not, But not quite. I think that her career really suffered due to all the censorship... Yeah. And people trying to stifle her. I'm sure. Um, Paramount executives felt they had to tone down the West characterization or face further recrimination, which is unfortunate since she saved them. Um, and it might be kind of surprising by today's standards that she was so risque because her movies had no nudity, no profanity and very little violence. Um Though raised in an era when women held second place roles in society, Mae West portrayed confident women who were not afraid to use their sexual wiles to get what they wanted. I was the first liberated woman, you know? No guy was ever going to get the best of me. That's what I wrote all my scripts about. Ugh. Yeah. Mae West. Yep. Yeah. Uh, her last film with Paramount was in 1937, Every Day's a Holiday. And again, due to censor cuts, the film performed below its goal. Ugh. Um the censorship had, had basically made her sexually suggestive brand of humor impossible for the studios to distribute. Right. Um, she, along with other stellar performers, were put on a list of actors called Box Office Poison. What? Yeah. Others on the list were Greta Garbo, uh. Joan Crawford, Marlena Dietrich, Fred Astaire, Dolores Del Rio, Catherine Hepburn, and Kay Francis. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Box Office Poison, sure. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Uh, the they it- weren't poisoned before you fucking put all these weird restrictions in place. No kidding. Uh, the attack was published as a paid advertisement in The Hollywood Reporter and was taken seriously by fearful studio executives. Yeah, that sounds like Trump. Yeah, it does, right? Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's weird. Uh, the association argued that these stars' high salaries and extreme public popularity did not affect their ticket sales, thus hurt the exhibitors. Um it didn't stop producer David O. Selznick, who next offered Mae West the role of the sage madam Belle Watling, the only woman to ever truly understand Rhett Butler and Gone with the Wind after Tallulah Bankhead turned him down. Ah. Mae West also declined the part, claiming that it was too small for such an established star, and she would need to rewrite her lines to suit her own persona, and the role eventually went to Ona Munson. Like we were saying, the most critical challenge facing her uh, career was the censorship of her dialogue in film. Um, as on Broadway, before... <laughs> Her risque and uh, uh, um, sexually suggestive dialogue could no longer be allowed to pass. She was so distraught after the experience of her final film's poor reception due to heinous over-editing of her humor and by her years of struggling with the censorship office that she would not attempt another film role for the next 25 years. Instead, she pursued a successful and record-breaking career in nightclubs, Vegas, nationally in theater and on Broadway, where she was allowed, even welcomed, to be herself. Well, that's good. I'm glad she didn't just, like, fade into obscurity the way Alan Asimova did, you know, and sort of become poor and and overlooked. Like, I'm really glad she continued to have successful careers just in different spaces. Yeah. Vegas seems like the perfect place for... Vegas is absolutely the perfect place for her. (laughs) Um, She revived Diamond Lil on Broadway in 1949. And the New York Times labeled her an American institution, as beloved and indestructible as Donald Duck. <laughs> like Chinatown wow. and Grant's tomb, Mae West should be seen at least once. Wow. Uh, in the 50s, she starred in her own Vegas stage show at the newly opened Sahara Hotel. Um, she sang while surrounded by bodybuilders. Amazing. The show stood Las Vegas on his head. Uh, men come to see me, but I also give the women something to see. Wall to wall men. <laughs> 
Oh, man. Uh, Jane Mansfield met and later married one of her muscle men, a former Mr. Universe, Mickey Hargitay. Amazing. When casting for the role of Norma Desmond uh, in Sunset Boulevard, Billy Wilder offered Mae West the role. First, um, still smarting from the censorship debacle and constraints placed on her characterization, she declined. Yeah. Because um, she would have wanted to rewrite her lines. Of course. So, um, yeah. I get it. After Mary Pickford also declined the role, Gloria Swanson mm. was cast. Interesting. Yeah, right? Um, in subsequent years, she was offered the role of Vera Simpson opposite Marlon Brando in the 1957 adaptation of Pal Joey, which she turned down. Hmm. The role went to Rita Hayworth. Oh. In 1964, she was offered a leading role in Roustabout starring Elvis Presley. She also turned the role down and Barbara Stanwyck was cast in her place. She was very selective, it would seem. But also, these women are much younger than she is at this point. Yes. That's really interesting. Yes. That they first went to Mae West, who by this time is what? How old? I In mean, 1964, she was in her 70s. That's insane. And Barbara Stanwyck would have been maybe in her 50s. Yeah. That's and Rita crazy. Hayworth was certainly a lot younger than Mae West. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. And 58, she sang on, on the Oscars. She sang Baby It's Cold Outside with Rock Hudson, which was standing ovation afterwards well okay um in 1959 she released an autobiography called goodness had nothing to do with it (laughs) it became a bestseller and was reprinted with a new chapter in 1970 ah damn straight Uh, she was guest starring on tv including dean martin show and the red skelton show and uh she did a lengthy interview which was censored by cbs in 1959 and never aired whoa CBS executives felt members of the television audience were not ready to see a nude marble statue of West, which rested on her piano. Oh, okay, okay. So ridiculous. Fine, um, fine. She made a guest appearance on Mr. Ed. Uh, she was interviewed by Dick Cavett, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we talked about her recording career. Yeah. Like she was releasing albums. Um, and after a 27-year absence from motion pictures, she appeared as Letitia Van Allen in Gore Vidal's Myra Breckenridge in 1970 with Raquel Welch, Rex Reed, Farrah Fawcett, and Tom Selleck. Wow. So it's like, it's so funny, all these people who were fledgling stars, and she was already like bona fide celebrity star. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, the movie was intended to be a deliberately campy sex change comedy, had serious production problems, resulting in a botched film that was both a box office and critical failure. Oh, no. Yeah. Um. She was a shrewd investor, produced her own stage acts, invested her money in large tracts of land in Van Nuys, a thriving suburb of Los Angeles. And with her considerable fortune, she could afford to do what she wanted. Clearly. Yeah. In 1976, she began work on her final film, which was called Sextet and came out in 1978. It was adapted from a 1959 script that she wrote, but the film's daily revisions and production disagreements hampered production from the beginning. Um, It was a tiring production schedule. She agreed to have her lines signaled to her through a speaker concealed in her hairpiece. Despite the daily problems, she was, according to the director, determined to see the film through. She was 84 at that point while they were filming. And her now failing eyesight made navigating around set difficult. But she made it through. Was she wearing her seven inch? I don't know. (laughs) At that point, I feel like that probably was problematic for her. Yeah. Um, But since she made it through, it was a tribute to her self-confidence, remarkable endurance, and a stature as a self-created star 67 years after her Broadway debut in 1911. Time magazine wrote an article on the indomitable star entitled, At 84, Mae West is still Mae West. In that film, in her 80s, she was playing 26-year-old Marlo Manners, <laughs> a six-time married movie star, alongside Timothy Dalton as her devoted young husband. Oh, so I think my God. Because since it was something she wrote in the 50s for a younger herself, right? <laughs> she still wanted to play that role. I don't think they tried to pass her off as 26, but yeah. you get it. The film earned $50,000 and had a $5 million budget. Oh, baby. So it didn't go over well at the oh, end there. She um, just needed it. I guess. She just needed to do it for I herself. guess. Um, I want to talk a little bit about her love life since okay. she was such a big sex symbol. Yep. There's some interesting facets to it, and it ends hilariously to me. <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, apparently, she was married in 1911 in Wisconsin to a man named Frank Zatkus. Um, whose stage name was Frank Wallace. He was another vaudevillian whom she met in 1909. She was 17. um, And she kept the marriage a secret. 
A filing clerk discovered the marriage certificate in 1935 and alerted the press because she was having multiple romances with other dudes. Uh. Um, The clerk also uncovered an affidavit in which she declared herself married, made during the sex trial in 1927. At first, she denied ever marrying him, but finally admitted it in 1937 in reply to a legal interrogation. The couple never lived together as husband and wife. She insisted they had separate bedrooms, and she soon sent him away in a show of his own to get rid of him. I don't know what the details of that are. Um, She obtained a legal divorce in 1942, during which Wallace withdrew his request for separate maintenance, and West testified that uh, he and she only lived together for several weeks. So apparently it was just like a... Like a seemed like Vegas a hot-headed decision, and then, but you couldn't get divorced very easily in 1911 right. or whatever. They were several weeks, and were like, mm, "This isn't working out, so let's just go live our several li- separate lives and pretend it never happened." But then wow. she was finally able to get a divorce in 43. Um, Amazing. She didn't even seek an annulment, probably because she's Mae West, who believes that she didn't. <laughs> she uh, didn't have sex with him. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She said later she uh, lost her virginity at the age of 13. Girl, what? And didn't go a week without sex her whole life. Holy shit. (laughs) All right. All right. She she lived to be like 87 or 88, depending on what year she was actually born, and was still fucking in her 80s, late into her 80s. She's into it. I'm into it. In 1913, she met Guido Dero, an Italian-born vaudeville headliner and star of the piano accordion. Her affair went, quote, very deep hitting on all the emotions. (laughs) West later said, marriage is a great institution. I'm not ready for an institution yet, which is interesting because she was married. Uh-huh. Um, she da, 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 had a relationship in 1916 while still in vaudeville with James Timoney, an attorney nine years her senior who was also her manager. Uh, by the time she was an established movie actress, they were no longer a couple. So it seems like they were together for quite a while, 1916 to the 30s. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, they remained extremely close, living in the same building, working together and providing support for each other until he died in 1954. Amazing. Um, she was close to her family throughout her life, was devastated by her mother's death in 1930. And um, that was around the time she moved to Hollywood. And she lived at the penthouse at the Ravenswood apartment building until her death in 1980. Wow. Um, her sister, brother and father followed her to Hollywood, where she provided them with nearby homes, jobs and sometimes financial support. Uh, among her boyfriends was boxing champion William Jones, nicknamed Gorilla Jones, which is racist because he was black. Uh-huh. Um, the wow. management, this is a great thing, though. Her, the management at her Ravenswood apartment building barred the boxer from entering the premises because he was black. She solved that problem by buying the building and lifting the ban. Good, 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 good. <laughs> I like that solution. That's good. Um, so uh, I'm so sorry. The sun is like right in your eyeballs. Oh, no, you're good. Okay. Um, she became romantically involved at age 61 with Chester Rubinsky, one of the muscle men in her Las Vegas stage show, a wrestler, former Mr. California, and former merchant sailor. Ooh. He was 30 years old. <gasps> oh. And later changed his name to Paul Novak. He moved in with her, and their romance continued until her death in 1980. Aww. Novak once commented, I believe I was put on this earth to take care of Mae West. Oh my god, that is really sweet. Yeah. So he was in his 50s when she died at the age of 87 or 88. Did he remarry or anything? I have no idea. I'm so curious about that. (laughs) What a just like adorable. This is my life scholar. And classic Mae West where she's like, I'm 61. He's 30. It's perfect. I know. I deserve this. (laughs) And which is why she was able to have sex every week of her life Uh until she died. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, my God. She's so wild. Um, But in August 1980, she tripped while getting out of bed. After the fall, she was apparently unable to speak and was taken to the Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles. And Tess revealed she had suffered a stroke. So she died on November 22nd, 1980, at the age of 87 or 88. (laughs) Depending on depending on what you believe, what you think. Um, But yeah, so that's the. Nice primer to her life. Wow. Um, yeah. I want to read parts of this interview that Charlotte Chandler did in the 70s. It was like 1979. So it was, it was a year before she died. And it's just words from her own mouth. So it's kind of, I find it fascinating. And, and you see what's so interesting about a lot of her character because she is a sort of pioneering 
uh, feminist and and she's for sexually liberated women and all of this stuff. But at the same time, she really seemed to to believe in like traditional gender roles and things like that. That that kind of makes sense, I think, just given the time she was yeah. born into. Yeah. Um, so the beginning of this just said, uh, Mae West held her hand out to me. As I took it, I scratched my palm on one of her diamond rings. All of her fingers were covered with diamonds. These, she explained, were just her daytime diamonds. Oh. <laughs> Holding out her hands, she said, they're all real. They were given to me by admirers. Her gaze settled onto my unadorned hands. Oh, you poor kid, you don't have any. For a moment, she regarded me with pity, but then she brightened. But you have some at home? <laughs> I shook my head. She studied me, then said encouragingly, you could, honey, but you've got to try, and you've got to know how to try. Knowing what you want is the first step toward getting it. There's nothing better in life than diamonds. <laughs> okay. Yep. Okay, May. And generally, at that uh, time in her life, she wasn't giving interviews, really, because she basically was like, I don't, everybody knows all they need to know about me. Right. What do you, um, do, 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 do. They always sent a man, she told me, not specifying who they were. I considered spending my time with a girls with girls a waste of time. So mm-hmm. I didn't mingle with any. <laughs> the only exceptions were her mom and her sister. Well, if she was looking to get laid every week, I could see why that would be her perception. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, the celebrations of herself on display throughout her apartment evinced no false modesty. They also signified that in her mid-80s, she was not afraid to be in competition with her younger self. Interesting. Yep. May gave me a hard look and said there was something she needed to tell me before we got into it. If you smoke, she said, you'll have to leave the room. I don't let anyone smoke in my presence. I assured her that wouldn't be necessary. Her approving look indicated I passed an important test. Then you'll keep your soft skin. That's how I kept mine. I always use baby oil, but the secret is it has to be warm and you have to have a man put it on you all over. (laughs) (sighs) Oh, my God. In her 80s. She was such a dude. She was such a dude. Oh, my God. That fucking one track mind. Mm -hmm. Not to be sexist towards dudes, but you know, one track mind, (laughs) sex on the brain. Well, here's what she says. So her next query had the same tone of entrapment as the smoking suggestion. Uh She asked if I wanted a drink. I declined. She said it was a good thing because she didn't have any liquor. (laughs) I never understood drinking. It isn't good for your looks and it cuts down on what you are. I never wanted to cut down on what I am. I was indefatigable. They only just found out that I had a double thyroid. Always had it, but didn't know it. Maybe that's the source of my energy, especially my sex energy. Is that scarf because you're cold or do you have something to hide? (laughs) I take off my scarf. That's better. Now unbutton a few buttons. Men like it if you show them a thing or two. I dress for women and undress for men. <laughs> She's just, she talks in fucking one-liners. She's a like quintessential writer. Just every word out of her mouth. Is a quip. Is a quip. That's sexually suggestive for the most part. And could go in a movie. <laughs> So Charlotte asked the question, what would you do if you didn't make the best first impression on a man? She said, get a different man. I'd figure there was something wrong with him. (laughs) I never needed clothes to make me feel sexy. I felt that way all the time. The nearness of an attractive man kept me in a constant state of sensual unrest. My God. (laughs) Wow. You summed it up at the end of I'm No Angel when Cary Grant asks you, what are you thinking about? And you answered the same thing you are. And then she says, that's very exciting for a man. When men sense a woman is ready for sex, they're ready right away. When men came to see me, I had to try and calm them down a little first. (laughs) Oh, my God. I had a lot of great love affairs. Sex and work have been the only two things in my life. And then Charlotte says, in reverse order of importance. And May says, yes. If I had to choose between sex and work, it's always work I'd choose. Hmm. I'm glad I didn't ever have to choose between them for more than a week. Mm-hmm. Since I was grown up, I've never been without either for more than a week. What's grown up, Charlotte says. Thirteen. Before that, I was finding my way. Charlotte says, didn't you ever have trouble finding a man? She said, puzzled. What do you mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? What? Um, I mean, one you really liked. They always found me. I could always find something to like about every man. Well, almost every man. Oh, my God. And then they start talking about her mom. Um, and this is on, of what in your career are you the proudest? I saved Paramount Pictures. 
they ought to have a statue of me, at least a bust. And Charlotte says, like, the nude statue in her living room, like that one. She said, no. <laughs> um, do you think sex is better with love? And she says, honey, sex with love is the greatest thing in life. But Aww. sex without love, that's not so bad either. <laughs> sex is the best exercise for developing everything. It's so very good for the complexion and the circulation. I've always had the skin of a little girl. Go ahead, touch it. That's all real. I didn't ever have to lift anything. So she claims sex is her medicine for staying young. All righty. Yep. Um, and, you know, one of her famous lines is, it's not the men in my life, it's the life in my men. Oh. So Charlotte asks her to clarify what kind of life do you look for in a man? She says, fire. A man can be short and dumpy, but if he has fire, women will like him. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think being a lady means something different now from what it used to? One thing that's changed is talking about um, talking about it as a value. Were you a good girl or a bad girl? She says, I was a bad girl with a good heart. I don't think things have changed so much. It's still a man's world with men making the rules that suit them best. Not wrong. And she uh, then Charlotte says, what uh, which time was better for women? And she says, I think it was better then. Now a woman is expected to have sex and the man doesn't even have to court her woman. Uh, the woman used to be a bigger prize. Interesting. Yeah, it is very of her time. Yep. And so at the end of this interview, Charlotte asks if she, she pulls out a camera and asks if she can take a picture with her. And Mae West says, I don't have my picture taken with other women. Oh, I never like to see myself in a picture except surrounded by men. You should always keep the best picture of yourself in your own head. If you don't uh, if you don't think you're wonderful, why should anyone else? I don't usually go on talking so much. You know, honey, I see something men must like about you. You're a brilliant listener. <laughs> and <laughs> she says, my idea of a wonderful time is sex and chop suey. <laughs> okay. So Chinese food after sex. Or before. She says after. Ah, uh, okay. She says it always tastes better after sex. Fascinating. Um, but then at the end of this interview, she reminds her not to forget her baby oil, warm, with a man putting it on all over. And just as Charlotte was leaving, Mae West called her back and said, honey, there's something I want to tell you before you go. You know, my diamonds I told you all those men gave me, I want you to know I bought some of them myself. <laughs> but anyway. Oh, man. She's so fascinating to me. Like... I don't. Well, she was. She. The thing is, she wasn't a product of her time. She was a product, like, despite her time. She was ahead of her time. She was so ahead. Of, she's ahead of our time. In in a lot of ways. In yeah. a lot of ways, and it's amazing to me that they were that she did make as much money as she did, and that they did seem to be prepared for her. Like, she always had a career. She was always making money. People always loved her. Yes. And so. In that way, she wasn't necessarily ahead of her time because she was appreciated. Mm-hmm. People loved the crap out of her. Mm-hmm. And I just, I find that crazy and amazing. And it, I think it says a lot more, too, about that time. We tend to think that people were always really conservative and people, you know, we've just been getting out of that. Like, mm-hmm. we've been we've been coming beyond our conservatism you know, for however long. But really, there was a period of time where people were progressive, sexually progressive. She wrote a show about drag queens and cast gay men exclusively and helped them collaborate on it with her in the 20s. Yes. And so we can't, like, there was absolutely a period in our history where we went backwards and I know when everyone says we should go back to the 1950s like that's what they're talking about they're talking about that period of time when we when we really started to um impress those values back it was the pendulum swinging back toward conservatism after the 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 liberation of the 20s and then the depression happened and then people were trying to you know in the 40s anyway yeah every time there's a war we have this weird thing where it's like oh god women are gonna start doing shit while the men are overseas so we gotta nip that in the bud and become really conservative again like we do that every single time but anyway all of that to say just i think it's i think she is so fascinating but also just i think perfect for her time and who she was and what she brought to cinema. You know what she is ahead of her time on? Is drinking and smoking. 
Because that was the 1970s. And she, for decades, had been like, nobody smokes in my presence because it's really bad for you. Yeah, nobody She didn't knew. think of it like lung cancer wise, but she was like, people who smoke age faster and I don't want to age. So keep that shit away from me. People who yeah. drink look like shit. So I don't want to drink. And she said that she had like three rules. No smoking, no drinking, no married men. Wow. She said there are enough men to go around that are single. So, yeah, I mean, the the smoking and the drinking for sure was like just not, nobody thought about the health issues with yeah. those things yeah. forever and ever. Yeah. I don't know. She's but I'll, amazing. I'll finish with a couple of her like quippy things so people can know her iconic voice. If you don't already, I feel like most people do. When I'm good, I'm very good. But when I'm bad, I'm better. I see a man in your life. What, only one? I changed my mind. Does it work any better? Well, I'm caught between two evils. I generally like to take the one I never tried. Uh, Take care of these men. Yes, give them all my address. I am delighted. I have heard so much about you. Yeah, but you can't prove it. Haven't you ever met a man that can make you happy? Sure. Lots of times. What kind of husband did you think I should get? I should take a single man, leave the husbands alone. Well, I can always tell a lady when I see one. Yeah, what do you tell them? I had a shooter lion once. Really? Was he mad? Well, he wasn't exactly pleased about it. <laughs> uh, you were wonderful tonight. I'm always wonderful at night. <laughs> Aren't you forgetting that you're married? I'm doing my best. What's a good of resistant temptation? There'll always be more. I wish you'd forget your principles, Ruby. I must have you. Your golden hair, your fascinating eyes, and alluring smile, and lovely arms. Your form divine. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is this a proposal or you take an inventory? You certainly know the way to a man's heart. Oh, funny, too, because I don't know how to cook. I'm sorry you think more of your diamonds than you do of your soul. I'm sorry you think more of my soul than you do of my diamonds. Do I bother you if I look over your shoulder? No, do I bother you? (laughs) I'll never forget you. No one ever does. (laughs) Well, it's better to be looked over than overlooked. Great town, St. Louis. You were born there? Yes. What part? Why, all of me. (laughs) (laughs) What'd you do, get your hair cut or have your ears moved down? You know I've been mad about you from the first time I laid eyes on you. Well, you're my whole world. What do you want to do, drive me to a madhouse? No, oh, I'll call you a taxi. <laughs> Young lady, are you trying to show contempt for this court? No, I'm doing my best to hide it. I wonder what kind of a woman you really are. Too bad, but I can't give out samples. I should come up sometime and see me. Come up sometime and see me. That's one of the big ones for sure. Oh, yeah. Let me uh, find my on this day. Dude, yeah, but Say. thank you. That was that was that was really really cool. Right? I love Mae West, and I only knew a little bit about her from my my film history class. Me too. And I'm glad that I know more now. Like she's iconic, but I realized I didn't know that much about her life. Well, you so. know her voice, but you don't know why you know her voice. That's a good one. Thank you. <laughs> oh, and she always oh. Exactly. <laughs> okay, on this day, it is March fourth. Uh, March 4th, 1789, in New York City, the first Congress of the United States meets. Whoa. Putting the U.S. Constitution into effect. Interesting. The U.S. State's Bill of Rights is written and proposed to Congress. Wow. So. Amazing. 1791, Vermont is admitted to the United States as the 14th state. All righty. Yep. 1794, the 11th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is passed, and uh, it restricts the ability of individuals to bring suit against states in federal court. Hmm. Uh, 1797, John Adams is inaugurated as the second president. Okay. Becoming the first president to begin his presidency on March 4th. <laughs> I guess. Okay. That's what it says. 1837, city of Chicago is incorporated. Wow, there's a lot in American yeah. history going on, according to Wikipedia. 1861, the first national flag of the Confederate States of America is adopted. Great. Oh, exciting. Yeah. 1913, the U.S. Department of Labor is formed. Fascinating. Yep. So much U.S. history. 1917, Jeanette Rankin of Montana becomes the first female member of the U.S. House of Representatives. We have an episode about her, too. Yes, we We're do. We're able to like talk about three of our previous episodes, this this uh, this one. So. I love it. Also, I mentioned Alan Azamova. Yeah, briefly. so that's like four people. Yeah. 
1933, someone that we are bound to talk about at some point. We've said we're going to talk about her at some point, too. Uh-oh. Frances Perkins uh-huh. becomes the United States Secretary of Labor, the first female member of the United States Cabinet. Oh, 1974, People Magazine is published for the first time. Wow, 74. I didn't realize it's that old. Yeah, I mean, that's I get, old. I guess, yeah, that makes sense, though. 1998. The Supreme Court of the United States rules that federal laws banning on-the-job sexual harassment also apply when both parties are of the same sex. Aha. So no more of that, oh, I'm a lady and she's a lady, so she can't, I can't have harassed her. And men and men. And men and men. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Call it a day. Not look at the births. This is taking too long. Let's call it a day. 13 pages of notes. Let's call it a day on your 13 pages of notes. What are you excited about, Hannah? Uh, that's a good question I wasn't prepared for. Um, well, I mean, I guess I already kind of talked about the fact that I was going on a retreat and that I was very excited. I'm excited that I went on my retreat <laughs> and that I'm home now and I had a lovely vacation in Austin and I also got to see all of my clients, like not all of them, but a Good chunk of them, some of whom listen to this podcast. Hello. Hi. And um, it was very rejuvenating. I think just seeing all of the people who I work with and who are my clients and getting to talk about... Because you work pretty remotely. I work remotely. and Because you live in New York and your office is in Denver, technically. Yeah. And even my clients, like I'm mostly talking to them through email. Yeah. And so it was, it was really, really just reviving for me to sit down with all of them and talk about story and talk about their careers and talk about our plans and the things that we want to accomplish together. Like I wasn't expecting to be so um, rejuvenated by that as I was. And so I came home and, and after Austin we spent, Ben and I spent a few extra days in Austin, but I came home and I just immediately, you know, sat down and, did half the work that was waiting for me Friday when I came back because I was just like raring to go and prepared to that's awesome to do it which yeah I was shocked because (laughs) I've I have been feeling like oh my god I have all this stuff to do like there's so much to read there's so much and then I ended up reading you know half felt inspired I just felt inspired that's fantastic I love that yeah so as a person who feels really burned out right I I miss that feeling yeah (laughs) I had been missing it too a little bit. Yeah. And um this this helped a lot. So. And you also got a cute haircut. Oh yeah. Thank you. I'm working with it. My my curls are still like I'm not sure what I'm doing, but <laughs> they'll get there. They'll figure it out. Yes. So yeah, that's what I'm excited about. Awesome. Yeah. And I think that that concludes our our jam-packed May West episode, yeah. And I think you can make a, a, an innuendo out of that. Oh, <laughs> I think you as just jam-packed did. as May West throughout <laughs> her life. But um, nicely done. Would she love it? I hope so. I think so. Yep. Rate, review, and subscribe. <laughs> and on that note, follow us on social media. We're pretty much everywhere: Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at GWBB Podcast. Email us at GWBB Podcast at gmail dot com. Any. Just you can say hi if you want to. We'll be like hi back. That's true. Yeah, you will. Um, our Patreon. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash GWBB podcast, or you can be a one-time donor on our Ko-Fi. That's ko-fi slash GWBB podcast. Buy us a coffee. We'll love you. We'll love you forever. All right. Leave and, a review. Uh, yeah. Subscribe. Do all those things, and and uh, we're we're grading we're grading you on it. So next time, see if you get an A or an F. We'll tell you on the next episode. I don't even know what that means. On your reviewing, <laughs> do you get an A or do you get an F? I don't know. I'm tired. We should say goodbye. We should say goodbye. <laughs> Peace out, witches. Goodbye. for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. 
Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.